And good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with episode 28 of Cinema. And as I promised, um, I had a a pretty popular reaction to a look at uh, the Halloween franchise itself and, and to see if cynicism played any part in that franchise. And I said I would take another look, uh, come back, swing back around to Halloween 2018, which has its fans and and detractors. And again, cinema is not about movie reviews, but a look at cynicism in the production of our entertainment and in the consumption of our entertainment. And so I thought I would look at Halloween 2018 and to see if if cynicism plays a part in its production. And of course, as we know, uh, the the two back-to-back sequels have have just completed shooting, I I imagine. The one question that I've I've always had about this and and Friday the 13th and even Nightmare on Elm Street, is Michael Myers or or even the slasher genre even relevant any longer? I I mean, who are we making these movies for? What is the demographic? And and again, if it provides entertainment, so be it. That's great. But I, I wanted to look at some things in the way of relevancy, and one of my arguments has been that the the times have changed, and and again we we have always looked at historical context in in the importance of a of the success of of a motion picture. Times have changed, but the monsters have not. And I drew a comparison in, in my previous podcast on Halloween and the franchise about how the Universal Monsters became outdated after the close of World War II, and they were kind of played for laughs. And and we've seen this to an extent with Freddy vs. Jason and and really what was nothing more than a a wrestling match, a professional wrestling match, uh, team-up, monster mash kind of thing. So we're going to look at Halloween 2018, and we're going to see, you know, just what is it, and who is it meant for, and and the production of it. In my previous podcast, I, I pondered what kind of a movie... Uh, Halloween 2018 would would really be, and most of all, you know, posited the question: Was it even needed? I mean, how would the franchise hold up 40 years later? And what does it really say about horror when when new ideas seem scarce and, and studios constantly return to the well? And and again, if something brings a good time, that's great. If it's entertaining, and I do have to give props to the Halloween franchise, whether it had. Uh, a number of better films or worse films, it's still around and it's making money. So let's look at, at Halloween 2018 and its production and, and its you know the whole conception of this. I mean, a number of people online instantly came out bashing the film, calling it quote unquote bad. And I think we have lost the real understanding of what a bad movie truly is. We've we've come into this nebulous kind of gray area where people think, you know, uh, certain films are so bad they're good. And what they don't understand is sometimes a movie is just shitty and bad. And, And that's Jaws the Revenge, which inspired this entire podcast. Jaws the Revenge is not so bad it's good. There is nothing good about Jaws the Revenge and go back and listen to episode two of this podcast and you'll see I will support this clearly. And the only good thing that I will give Jaws the Revenge is the score by Michael Small. But that's it. I often remind people that there is a huge difference between so bad it's good and just plain bad. Cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, is about cynicism in filmmaking, and that, folks, originates really, you can go back and look at Ed Wood. And I've often said, 
Look, I'm not saying Ed Wood was a master filmmaker or even a, a remotely good filmmaker, director, writer, artist. However, Ed Wood did not try to fuck people out of their money. He thought he was making good stuff. The people who made Jaws the Revenge had no intention of entertaining you or even remotely making anything good. It was a huge tax write-off, vacation opportunity, and a way to fleece some money out of people and out of the coffers of Universal to make a payday and a hit-and-run strategy. Roger Corman's Galaxy of Terror is so bad, it is wonderful. And Jaws the Revenge, as I said, is just shit in the definition of cinema. And why? Because Galaxy of Terror had almost no budget and made by a man who understood the schlock factor and gave us a clear alien ripoff while delivering sex-crazed worms and Sid Haig chopping off his own arm. Corman's goal was to entertain and to titillate. It always was. And Jaws the Revenge was made by a major studio, had major money for its budget, and had no intention, as I said, to entertain anyone. It was made to fleece fans of the franchise by wringing out a few more bucks because they knew they could. It paid for a studio head and his wife to take a months-long vacation to the Bahamas, threw money at Michael Caine, and was likely some sort of tax write-off. There was extra money in the universal budget that had to be spent. That's cynical filmmaking, and that's cinema. Roger Corman is not cinema. He may not be Spielberg-level art, but he is not a cynical dick. And Halloween 2018 is not cinema, and it is not a quote-unquote bad movie. Just because it may have disappointed some fans doesn't make it bad. It was bound to disappoint some, but it also thrilled a bunch of others. As I talked about before, there's a reason the filmmakers, including John Carpenter, decided to forego 1981's lackluster Halloween 2, the official sequel to the 1978 Halloween. That film was a bland, lazy retread, and everything the first film worked so hard to avoid. And if you don't believe me, go back to and listen to my previous episode on Halloween, and, and you'll understand. I still support the fans give 1981's Halloween blind love because the major cast returned and Michael still walked the Haddonfield streets on the same night. They look at it as an extension of the original Halloween. Now look, Halloween 2 is well made, but it's a cynical film. It is a cash grab. They knew people would return no matter what ended up on the screen, just as the people who made Jaws the Revenge knew the fans would return. The stupid subplot of Laurie and Michael as siblings was never supposed to be, and it was very satisfying to see the new film in 2018 jettison that lame storyline. That was done to flesh out a weak script for Halloween 2. And man, they even mentioned that in the previews for Halloween 2018. They're letting the audience know Halloween 1981, Halloween 2 1981 has nothing to do with any of this. We're kicking it out. Halloween 2018 is not a cynical film, and it is not a bad one. It is made with detail and caring with a true respect for the Long in the Tooth franchise. The effects are top shelf, the production value from camera department through sound is all fantastic. The new film is better than the 1981 sequel and is the rightful sequel to the original Halloween film. There's a reason why all the sequels not counting again Halloween 3, which is not a Halloween sequel, were ignored. Now, however, 
The filmmakers were really kind, and they gave a really nice reference to Halloween 3 by using the Don Post masks in 2018's film. However, again, Halloween 3 is not a real sequel to the Halloween franchise. It has nothing to do with any of that, and you can go back and listen to a previous podcast I have simply on Halloween 3, which supports why I feel it's actually a pretty damn good and fun horror film. And speaking of masks, Michael's mask itself is is almost its own star, and it's it's treated that way in the 2018 film. This mask is the best looking since the original, and, and don't believe me? Look at that shitty Party City knockoff used in the overrated and equally lazy Halloween 4. Michael's mask represents his own aging, as Laurie's face also gathered similar wrinkles and, and cracks over time. Both are weathered and battle-scarred by their fates, and the connection between Laurie's face and the mask is great imagery, and they, they use this in, in the poster art. I, I thought it was brilliant. So what did we get? We waited 40 years, and so did Laurie Strode. What we got was an uneven walk down memory lane. The film starts strong with an iconic visit to Smith's Grove Asylum and then unravels into teenage killer filler scenes to get us where we knew it was going just from the preview. I mean, like I said, the trailer shows us where we will end up, but the way there is long and sometimes meandering, and that's why I'm doing a podcast on this. Again, not a film review, but looking at the process of the production of this motion picture. Recently, the topic came up on on whether horror should have a message or, or worse yet, an agenda. Look, all movies have a message. Some make social statements and others clearly have an agenda. Horror usually gets the brunt of attacks with words like misogynistic and racist, sexist, and, and they're all thrown in to make a point. But with 2018, I remember, man, that something really odd kind of emerged that you don't usually see with a horror film. And we kind of, you know, from from attacks on the film, uh, people were calling it a right-wing uh, favoring kind of film. So we, I guess we ended up with a right-wing conservative Halloween. Halloween 2018 might be the, the first horror film to be labeled a conservative manifesto for gun rights. And and I, I can prove it. If you, if you go online to my, my blog, for my cinema blog, I, I posted two links uh, where people are saying that Halloween 2018 was was a pro-gun message horror film. And I guess at that time with, with midterm elections, they were, they were just weeks away. I, I guess that kind of smacks a little coincidental. I mean, I will say that the film sends a strong message on the weakness and, and naivete of, of the present self-absorbed generation. After viewing it, I, I felt the film commented on a generation uninterested by the history that shaped a world they, they take from, but really don't give back to. When real crisis comes, this generation is woefully ill-equipped to handle it, and they fall back on the strength of the previous generation they disparaged to defend them. Okay, boomer. Well, the fucking boomers saved the new generation's ass in this movie. So no, I, I don't think the 28 film is some plug for the NRA and gun lovers. While there is always online outrage for just about anything these days, I'm surprised of the lack of outrage for the film's portrayal of, of African Americans. The little boy, uh, Jabrail, in is the scene-stealing little African American boy honored with a visit from, from the boogeyman on Halloween night. Remember that scene? And before his babysitter is dispatched by Michael, 
we were treated to a, a jive-talking stereotype. So we got this nine-year-old boy talking like a ghetto hood rat, knowing all about marijuana names and blackmailing his babysitter, Vicky. Now, horror has always used stereotypes from the nerd and virgin to the dumb dickhead jock and his slutty girlfriend. Look, I get it. We've had horror where the black characters are the pot smokers, the drug dealers, and the Asians who are wacky, book smart, and the like. But as a horror filmmaker... I I do get it. Suspension of disbelief. Go with it. It's a horror movie. However, Haddonfield is this suburban Mayberry and and it was far removed from the city elements. So this boy's house is clearly upper middle class suburban. Why does he have to talk like an R-rated Gary Coleman? I, I mean, I shit you not. I waited for this kid to say, what the fuck you talking about, Willis? That moment never came, but I wouldn't have been surprised if it did. Where are all the uptight white people who love to pontificate the evils of other whites? I don't think they should. It's a movie, and I'm not calling the movie racist. However, what if Omar Dorsey's cowboy hat-wearing sheriff was played in a Rochester voice? No, sir, Mr. Benny. We gots to get that Michael Myers. Dorsey is played as this flamboyant showboat of a man with law enforcement bling. He looks more like a Vegas high roller than a sheriff. I mean, he's like David Clark, right? I'm not sure why it had to be this, since the other sheriff is your average sheriff-type guy. I mean, Dorsey doesn't do much except call attention to his hat and fancy attire and wag his finger at his officer to bring Michael in. The line between stereotypes for entertainment and and minstrel blackface shows is a thin one. I mean, if you're going to bitch, then you better be consistent online outrage community. You know, speaking of which, we've we've got Jamie Lee Curtis and and her new version of, of Laurie Strode and I basically call her Jamie Oakley. So before I get into Jamie Lee's character and all that stuff, I want to ask you for everybody listening, and that is, why is it or is it a stereotype or trope or cliche that whenever we have to feature a strong woman in in movies or, or television or better yet, when we see a woman make a transformation why do they turn from like their previous meek character into Sarah Connor? It seems like Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor is the template to show the drastic contrast between the original personality and then the kick-ass taking names personality. And I'm, I'm going to be offering up something in a little bit, uh, which I proposed would have been a much more interesting take than having Jamie Lee Curtis turn into what she did in Halloween 2018. I wonder why the production went down that route to to turn her into this hard-boiled, quasi-crazy swamp person. It's just a term that I use. I don't know if that's even the right term, but she kind of just turns into this survivalist, and it seems like that's the big thing to do with with women to, to show that they've become strong. They've they've got to almost become masculine to show that they're strong and they've conquered their meekness or or they're no longer an introvert or they're no longer afraid. I, I don't understand why we, we can't have an image of a woman that, that went from him. And I know that there are some things out there like this. So this is not a blanket statement. I, I'm, I'm just pointing out that especially in the case of this, you know, there were great lengths made in the original Halloween to show that Lori, what set Lori apart from her her friends, 
was was really her brains. She was smart and she was resourceful, which in the end, that's what saved her from Michael. And instead, she becomes in this one, this this malevolent kind of almost well, she is considered crazy by her family, this this malevolent force that's that's uncontrollable, unpredictable, and and she's become antisocial and and all of this stuff. And and I just don't understand why it always has to go that route. I mean, the weekend after the film's release had the media fawning and gushing over its yet again epiphany that not only does horror make big bucks, no fucking shit, but women over 40 and 50 can be action stars. Again, no fucking shit. The studios pat themselves on the back for announcing this, but don't admit they've had their heads up Marvel's asshole for a long time. Linda Hamilton showed us what happens when a traumatized woman fights back, spending her life preparing for a showdown apocalypse, and and Sigourney Weaver set the tone with her faded centuries-long battle with the xenomorphs. Jamie Lee Curtis gathers up an arsenal, turns her property into a fortified shooting range, and the media gushes about strong women, and, and I guess all the other women who have paved the way stand by and go, really? Before any Halloween fan gets their panties in a bunch, I am not taking away from Curtis's performance. She is the best goddamn thing about the film, and the director gives her some real moments. And and one of those moments was when she was sitting in her car with the booze and a gun, waiting for Michael to be transferred. The anguish in that scene is palpable and left me wanting more of this kind of stuff in the film. It, It was a fantastic scene. My question is, why did Lori have to become some swamp girl survivalist? What if she went on to fulfill her brainy nerd girl stereotype and became some powerful, wealthy woman who spent her life behind the mask of a calm and prosperous professional planning for the inevitable showdown with Michael? Imagine that if she was some powerful executive and on the surface, she's like, you know, Time Magazine, successful woman of the year, whatever, that kind of thing. But behind it all, that's all a mask and a facade. She's waiting for Michael to return. Why did Lori have to become some deliverance-type swamp girl, toting her guns, blasting mannequins, and and ruining her daughter's childhood? Imagine that Lori wore that mask that I just said all these years, pretending to be someone she was not, all to kill the boogeyman. I've always maintained that Dee Wallace was screwed out of an Oscar for Cujo. Her performance in that film is nothing short of combat pay and a ballsy sidestep from the commercial success she had with E.T. and that whole family genre. Heather Legenkamp vanquished Freddy and became one of horror's earliest female warriors. Ashley Lawrence gave Pinhead a run for his money. I am sure anyone hearing this can add to this list. None of this takes away from a raw and powerful performance by Curtis. My outrage, and I'm being very sarcastic here, is again for the media and industry that act like this is all a new thing. Oh, strong women. Oh, wow, this is fantastic. Like, they always do this. Shit, man, they've been around a long time. Go ask Heather Langenkamp. Go ask Dee Wallace. Go ask Sigourney Weaver. Go ask Ashley Lawrence. It's been around a while, folks. This is not an epiphany. And I'm going to give props to Jason Blum and Blumhouse. I mean, what they're doing is is like Amblin Entertainment or, or Marvel for horror. That's what they're doing. They're the Disney of horror. The real hero in, in this whole reboot thing is Jason Blum. And like I said, Blum is kind of like horror Spielberg. He, he came into a broken industry and reinvented it and showed by action and example how it can be done. Blum has the Midas touch in taking low-budget horror and making it into a big fucking event. 
From Insidious and his pairing with James Wan, another rebel who fucked up the system, through Halloween 2018, Blum saw how to make good product for low money and create massive profit margins. So whether you like all of Blumhouse's stuff, and I'm sure even Jason Blum doesn't, the man knows how to run a railroad. Blum came to town and asked a simple question. Why does horror have to be expensive? And from there, he went to work creating low-budget horror with high concepts and fucking great talent and suddenly had himself a model that everyone tried and still is trying unsuccessfully to copy. Jason Blum is horror's Willy Wonka. His factory holds great mystery and dark secrets that the slugworths of the industry want to steal. Blumhouse gave us 2018's everlasting gobstopper, and it was wrapped all in a golden ticket. You either like the candy or you don't. As a filmmaker, I want to be Charlie Bucket for a chance to not just tour Blum's factory, but win the grand prize. So that's my take on Halloween 2018 and what it means. We'll see what the sequels deliver. And will they be made with the same quality? I suspect so. Blum knows exactly how to run the railroads, as I said, and he's got a fantastic model. So let's see. You may like them. You may not. However, Halloween 2018 is not cinema. This is Harrison Smith. Hope you folks have a great week. And again, I really appreciate your support. Head on over to iTunes and give me a like and review. And if you want to read my cinema blog, you'll find it at horrorfuel.com forward slash author forward slash Harrison.